Hi, welcome to By Being Be Right Back podcast. I'm Giona. I am Ava. And we know each other from way back when, when we were in our early threes, up to the thirteens, and now in our almost thirties. We both have been living in the Netherlands for almost 10 years and we both have been missing the conversation of what it means to be Caribbean in the Netherlands. We too deserve representation within the community we live in and we have a responsibility to also give space for those who have this need to feel represented. These conversations are a good start at that, but certainly not the last step. For us, it's the bibing culture that struck a chord. As Caribbean migrants, we have a strong legacy of coming and going, making a home everywhere, seeking for familiarity within the community we constantly place ourselves in. But still, we find ourselves coming back to our roots, to our home, and realize that coming from the Caribbean is a meaning that is an ongoing process. We tried to find the closest translation to by being, and we agreed that Be Right Back was the best choice. In this podcast, we go on a journey with different guests to find out what this means for them while also looking at the different experiences within migrating back and forth from this area. It's a podcast on the culture of being from and going back and forth to the Caribbean. Both Guiana and I are from Aruba. Both our experiences are with coming and going back and forth, as it has given us the privilege to not only have a home in Aruba, but also being able to build a home in the Netherlands. However, our experiences with the whole situation is very complex, and so we find it important and essential to learn from our other Caribbean islands what their experience was. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of Be Right Back by Being Podcast. Like we already mentioned in the intro, I am Giona. And I am Ava. And today we are talking with our guests, Artwell Kane, Shanika Romney, and Lisa Adams on our fifth episode titled Life After. Yes. In this episode, we focus on life in the so-called gray area. The life you have after you have built or are building uh, after you are done with what you were set out to do in Europe or in the Netherlands in most of our cases. That could be after studying in the Netherlands, like I just said. A new phase begins, the place you occupied to get to that goal that has become a form of home. What's going to happen next? Where do we feel like our so-called loyalties maybe uh, lie or our focus lies now? I started, I started working immediately and I kind of already knew what my life was going to look like because in my senior year, you only really did internships. So you really do have a preview of what the work field can look like for you. So that preview became reality for me. Um, and I also wanted to see where my dance career would take me. So I decided to stick around in the Netherlands after my studies. Um, and right off of college, I was working about 30 hours a week, like <laughs> nonstop. Um, so quite exhausted in the weekends as well. But I always loved working hard. So uh, it was all I knew already from my academic times being so physically active already, but working hard didn't mean a very high income. Um, so on the other side of that post-college coin, uh, you know, that you graduate and you realize what work can look like. You also have the question from the Caribbean coming, like, when are you coming back home? Like, why don't you come and work at home? You know, um, and 
you really just eat your stomach up because that's such a heart-wrenching question, you know, every time they ask it. And, you know, I always reply with like, yeah, you know, the way that the dancing system looks like on Aruba is not really, really attractive to me. Or I say like, you know, I just want to check out how where work will go. Those are most of my answers, to be honest. And, uh, you know, you feel so torn because, you know, you choose to live here. And uh, here in the Netherlands, we're post four years college. I'd say now I'm in a very good place professionally. I'm very happy. But at the same time, you're you're also still concerned about loved ones back home. So you're so torn between realities that you really, you're kind of so torn all the time. It's a feeling that you're constantly living with. So every time you go home, certain realities are, are so confronting and you're not really sure how you can handle that while also being back home. You want a certain security. You want, you want to know that your family's safe, you know? Um, so those are really the, the, the things that you very much deal with, I'd say, at least for me, you know, but eventually we do have to go back home. Right. Or who says so, like who says that going back home means that you also have to stay for some time, but then you return to the Netherlands um, because some of us go and stay for some time. So coming and going looks so different for so many people. Um, are we even welcome back home to even make changes? Um, so, you know, the life of the in-between in the life after phase for me also means always feeling torn apart, but also somehow whole in a way. It's very complex. Yeah. Thank you, Ava, for sharing your perspective on that. If I think about like life after, I th- I think about all of the different ways people or reasons actually people migrate as well. So I think most of us in this conversation, we migrate because we have had a sort of privilege of being able to study in the Netherlands and going there and finishing off. So we have a clear goal, me as well. And then we have all of these complex questions that you just talked about indeed, Ava. Um, for me personally, I also think about the life after or the afterlife of studying. I kind of dreaded it in a way because I think about bills and I I was thinking about responsibilities um, and a new phase of my life, even though I never really got to fully enjoy the the college life, you could say, as most people around me in my class, at least at the university who were born in the Netherlands could. That had a lot to do with financial uh, factors. Um, I never really had the feeling like I could breathe, you could say, after finishing my studies back in, actually in 2017, but I handed in my thesis in 2018. Um, I had to immediately start working because of the pressures that I felt that were mostly financial, uh, like paying back my student debt or just like, how am I going to eat <laughs> the coming times? You know, I didn't have parents who could um, help me in that way for a longer period of time. Um, if I think about the phase that I am in right now, which is the the afterlife of what I came, what I was set out to do in the Netherlands. Um, I also think about giving back um, without being savioristic in a sense to the communities that I'm from. So obviously moving to the Netherlands and um, having a diploma doesn't necessarily obviously mean that you have a job, but I did get my work stuff in order, which meant that I am in a different social 
economic bracket than my parents were just only because I also earn my money in euros, which is a big difference than what my parents or families or people in general on the island uh, get paid uh, where I'm from in Aruba. Um, so all of those factors play a role, but I also, yeah, like I said, think about giving back in the sense of creating space or stretching out the spaces that are already there and filling them up with resources, not for me to use, but for people to use on the islands and in the Netherlands who are already, who have already been doing things maybe longer than I have. Um, I also had to think about when we were talking about this, I had to think about the fact that the first time I could really exhale uh, was when I came in uh, December 2000 and we're in 2021 now, right? Yeah, so 2020. And I came here for a few months because of the pandemic. I, and I mean here because I'm in Aruba right now and we're recording. I came on the island uh, because I wanted to be closer to my parents and like all of the responsibilities that I felt, but also the worries because we we are and were living in a pandemic got more severe and everyone was working from home and anyway. So the things that I did were moved online so I could stay here for a few months. And I think that was the first time since I moved from Aruba in 2011 that I felt like I could kind of catch up on the healing and uh, the reflection, like the reflecting reflections of what I had left in 2011. I could finally pick that up again and kind of mend those parts in myself and kind of be with my parents and uh, family, but mostly my parents because it was a pandemic and I didn't do that much with other people, um, that I could finally pick that up. So that is also a part of that narrative for me personally um, of the afterlife, of life after what I came to do in the Netherlands in, uh, first and foremost, and that was to finish my studies. So it was good for my livelihood in a very complex and odd way the past few months of the pandemic being here. And it was confronting as well, but with sort of like a security blanket feeling. And I think that makes up what this podcast is about as well, like that in-between life. It's like you don't have one specific answer. It's always that gray area and always that parallel, pa those parallel narratives, that parallel life that you in some way always need to inhabit to be who you are as a Caribbean person most of the time because you're always relating to the former colonizers country. You're always relating to the island or the, the country where you're from. It's always a relationality. Um, so that that is on my part. Um, before we go further, um, we always mention that these conversations uh, within the podcast are coming from as much as possible a critical point of view. But we are also very aware that we are executing these conversations in an institutional context because our uh, program partners or actually facilitators, you could say, are um, institutions based in the Netherlands. Um, so we also want to clarify that these conversations are not definite. They are our points of view. It's an open conversation uh, where we share our thoughts and experiences. We find similarities, but we also find differences. And it's important to address these differences as well. That's always a little disclaimer that we give. <laughs> Thank you.
So if we move forward, before we get to our lovely guests, we have the life in the gray area, as we kind of mentioned before. It's a phase where most probably you're living in the afterlife of what you came to Europe to do. In our case, study, most like most of us, but some people have different reasons. Uh, you came to Europe and you have accomplished, sorry, what you were set out to do. That means celebration, right? But it also means a huge study debt and finding your place in the job market. Where in the Netherlands specifically, it's scientifically proven, proven that the job market is ruled by racist and other discriminatory aspects. Of course, we try our best and we bounce back every time because that's who we are. But before some of us can and want to financially sustain ourselves to be able to live the life of the in-between, of going back and forth maybe, or just going back, or just staying put where we are, what do we need to do to take that leap into our next steps? Especially because not taking that leap can, and either way, will have an effect on our livelihoods, and especially economically and health-wise. After living for some time in the Netherlands and finally have found, or maybe not completely, our way through the educational systems in the Netherlands, a certain amount of us actually, as they say, made it. Meaning we have eventually received our diploma or diplomas in whatever academic level we spent either three, four, or maybe even four plus years studying at. But just because we received our papers, and mind you, this was certainly not done in a flexible way, that does not mean that we are exactly ready to live the post-student life, or as they say, the adult life either. The moment you receive your paper in your hand, many factors in your life will shift, and you will feel that shift the moment you start to work in a capitalist country where working to your absolute maximum is praised while still trying to balance out the other factors that don't change. You still have to provide for your family back in the Caribbean. You now have to navigate through Dutch work spaces, where you hope you will be accepted and hoping even more that the place where you will work at is actually diverse and inclusive. Do you even like where you work? Do you still have the energy and the passion to continue living in the Netherlands and build your life here? Or do you go back home? Or do you come and go, like we're doing now? Do you stay in the place that once colonized your home that you left? Or do you take back your space and claim it on colonizer's ground? Shanika Romney, Elisa Adams, and Artwell Kane, we will dive into what this means for them and the following questions. But before heading to the questions, we want to ask our guests to introduce themselves. So well, let's start with Artwell Kane. Would you like to introduce yourself first? Thanks, Emma, also Dion. Thanks for having me also. But the thing is, um, I'm Artwell Kane. I'm originally from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Lived many years in, um, in the Netherlands, doing various things, worked, studied, and eventually I'm now back. I'm well, back, not back for any. I'm in Aruba now for the last um, three years. 
do you want me to see what I did or this is enough for now? You can say shortly maybe what you did, but um, like really short and then we can go to the introduction of the other people. Well, the thing is, many, many years ago, back in sentence, my ambition was to study at university level, but it was more or less impossible um, because the cost, paying the cost, even in England, was very expensive. So my kickoff was actually music. I used to be a musician. Maybe I'm still, a, I still am. Played saxophone, and I was invited to um, to go to the Netherlands to play saxophone in a Caribbean group. So I went. Caribbean Stompers. We made um, one LP and a couple of singles. I was one of the songwriters, saxophone, percussions. And uh, later, I ended up playing with uh, an Aruban band called Trap, Flash Tropical Steels, guys from San Nicolas. So I was playing with them, saxophone, steel band, and all that. Um, in that same period, I met my wife, who's an Aruban also, and we got married then. And um, so I was, my income was coming from playing music and also as freelance journalist, because I've done um, what we call in, in the British a kind of a correspondent journalistic, the London School of Journalism. So I was writing pieces here and there and opinion stocks for um, opinion pieces for um, British magazines and newspapers. And then I decided I wanted to study something. I wanted to have something more substantial because I realized if I was going to go back to St. Vincent or someplace else in the Caribbean, you need to have papers because if you're going to write critical pieces, and I used to be very critical, maybe I'm still am, but not so critical as I used to be then. You'll be kicked out. You'll be kicked out, and there are not a lot of newspapers and other other um, companies that, that deal with writing that you can um, associate yourself with. So you need to have uh, a diploma that you can do something else if you are kicked out. And then I decided to study economics. But then I realized Economics will be in England, but it was a very expensive course. And I was told, well, you can do economics in Rotterdam also at Erasmus. And I kept looking at that, but then I realized, how about anthropology? Because, but then anthropology was new to me because I did not know any black anthropologists. I've read about anthropology, saw um, the writings of anthropologists, I decided there and then, I want to be an anthropologist. I want to be one of the black anthropologists because then I could write about myself, write about Africa and about Latin America. So that's when it started. I got in, I did my master's at the um, University of Utrecht. 
And within, uh, I did my, uh, my apprenticeship in Costa Rica for seven months with um, farmers down in Laurel, that's the border with, um, with Panama. Then I came back and I started to work immediately. And, but then not as an anthropologist, but then as director of an Antillian welfare organization record on called SVR, SWA. That was then the biggest. I see Eva is laughing. I mean, you know, you know, SVR, right? And, and there, so this whole thing of being wanting to help others and to be involved with community building was really getting more and more um, concrete. I spent um, 10 years at SVR as a director. I guess I came in as director because I had a, a diploma as a master's diploma, Dr. Anders. So I spent 10 years there. And then I went to, um, to a commercial company dealing with um, management uh, consultancy and diversity. While I was there, um, a professor, I was reading pieces, documents, essays of a professor, and he said to me, uh, don't you want to, um, to do your PhD? I said, no, I'm not bothered. Say you should do it because whether you do it or not, you're going to get older anyway. So it's okay. Um, I'll do it. And that was in um, 2000, 2003. And so I started um, a, what you call Veritable Vendors at Tilburg University um, doing social sciences. And I started and within um, three and a half years, I was finished and became a PhD in anthropology or social sciences. Um, Lisa, or to introduce yourself, Shanika or Lisa? All right, hello everyone. My name is Lisa Adams. I am 26 years old and I was born and raised on the beautiful 37 square mile island of St. Martin. Uh, eight years ago, I left the island to pursue my studies in the Netherlands where I completed my study in international communication and media with a major in marketing. Um, that actually was last year that I graduated. So actually this topic for today is quite relevant because I am presently trying to maneuver my way and figure out life after studying. Uh, in addition to this, I am one of the co-founders of the Sales platform, which serves as a safe space to highlight the people of St. Martin and its culture and the uniqueness of the island itself. And yeah, I think that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. We'll, uh, we'll hear from you in a bit later. Shanika, you can go ahead. Hi, everyone. So my name is Shanika Romney. I am a 25-year-old, also healing from St. Martin. Um, and yeah, I'm a recent graduate. And like Lisa mentioned, this topic is also quite certain because right now I'm in that phase of figuring out what to do next. 
Um, and I study European studies. And for anyone that has studied European studies understands or knows how broad that subject can be. So choosing your career path is never easy when getting that degree because you can find yourself in so many different areas. Um, and aside from that, I'm also the co-founder of CLSS platform, which Lisa already explained. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversations that we're about to have right now on this podcast. Thank you for introducing yourself. It's great. I'm very excited. Uh, Ava, maybe you want to introduce the first question to our guest. Yes, thank you everybody so much for your lovely introductions. So let's get started, shall we? The first question is, what were the realizations that came afloat when you received your diploma and a new phase of your life started? Let's go for Lisa. You want to go first? That's no problem. I will go first. Uh, So first of all, the expectations that I had after graduating were completely skewed due to the fact that I graduated uh, during a pandemic. So of course, all the things that would regularly apply to being a fresh graduate went through the window. So I had the impression that I was I would be a fresh graduate. I would be very attractive to many businesses. Marketing is a very um, attractive field to be in. So I was very excited and ready to take on the world. And then of course, unfortunately, uh, COVID-19 happened. Uh, so for the better half of a year, I spent job searching while working in an industry that I didn't intend to work in in order to make ends meet, of course, to survive, to eat, to pay rent. Because, of course, after you finish studying, uh, you no longer have uh, access to study financing. Uh, therefore, I went into the hospitality industry where I worked as a receptionist while on the side every day sending out um job applications, uh, sending your CV to every single uh, company possible that you can just find yourself in the field that you really like, which in my case was marketing. And this was a very draining experience for me. I must say the first three or four months, I was really optimistic. But then after receiving rejection letter after rejection letter or not having any response whatsoever, um, it became a very defeating process to go through so I must say my experience for life after studying was nothing that I anticipated Uh, I think after about nine months in January I decided okay let's take a break because obviously being locked up at home going through the same cycle over and over again takes a toll on you so I went back home to reset to regroup to re-strategize in order to figure out what will be my next step with this whole life after studying journey? Um, when you went home, were there any realizations that you had received um, in terms of what you felt was important to you in terms of your livelihood? Anything that you felt like, hmm, you know, I still feel that I want to continue uh, continue on in the Netherlands or do I already start to get the feeling that I do want to come back home and start giving a hand? I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like there's an expectation for you to go abroad and succeed and, so to say, to just excel beyond going back home. And for me, I guess it was a little bit different because I came from immigrant parents. I was born and raised on the island where my parents are from uh, Guyana. 
So for them, they have the very like hardworking mindset. You go out, you make the best of what you can do to yourselves. Um, don't worry about going home. Don't worry about us. Just go out and do your best. And then home can always be like a retirement stage, you know? So this was a definitely a realization for me. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to continue on to Shanika. Shanika, the same question for you. What were the realizations that came afloat when you received your diploma and the new phase of your life started? Okay, so for me... Um, so I'm going to, I, it took me seven years to get my bachelor's diploma, but like for the last year, um, I was only missing one class. So I already felt like I was graduated. I was just like, you know, I just need to do this one class. So in that one year before officially graduating, um, I kind of like already was already thinking about what I'm going to do next, you know? So I kind of set up myself in certain areas, like partaking in, um, student associations. I also did a second internship. Um, and I really like tried to brand myself uh, uh, while still aiming to get a diploma because I was already, I think, I don't know, maybe it was my anxiety was like, you know, I need to set up myself somehow. I need to stand out. Um, so for the past year, I've been working really hard on those things. And then when I finally got my diploma, um, I don't know, for me, it was a bit anticlimactic because I felt like I went through all of these things and then I got here and I felt like I would feel different and I did not feel different. I was like, okay, on to the next. Like, you know, like you finished run this whole journey and it's like, oh, okay, <sighs> we take a breather and then we need to start back up in this whole new mindset. So uh, after finally getting my diploma in June of what year are we in? 2021. Um, yeah, I started applying. I got a lot of no's. There was one week, I think I got a no every day. And I was like, yeah, I don't know how people do this. Like, it was it was ridiculous. And also, like, hearing Lisa's, like, story and, like, just being her friend and her experience already. Like, I was already feeling, like, what she went through. And for me, just having to experience that in a short period of time, I was like, girl, I don't, I, how, how did you manage? Because it wasn't working for me. Um, and uh, similarly to Lisa, I got so many no's. And then I think about a month ago, I got a yes, where I worked in a field which was nothing related to my study at all. But just like Lisa mentioned, I had to make ends meet. So I took the job, but I must say now I officially, I guess I could say it now that I got a position um, that is some in my field. So I'm happy for that because that's something I really been counting on. Uh, it totally came out of the blue. So I'm hoping to capitalize on that and see where that takes me uh, further in my career. Um, so yeah, so for me, this journey has been a bit of like a lot of faith, just having a lot of faith. Um, and also just me coming out of my comfort zone. Like the past year has been me really like uh, putting myself a lot out there, even though I didn't want to, even though it was a pandemic, I was like, I need to put myself out there because I wasn't sure about what would happen next. Thank you so much. I think most of us can definitely relate to this. You know, I mean, the, I mean, whoa, but we should definitely get more into that later. Um, the question goes to Art, Artwell. I mean, you have, of course, you have studied 
for a very long time um, in your life, I think. I, I hear you've received multiple diplomas in your life, you know. Um, so I ask Artwell, what were the realizations that came afloat when you received your diplomas um, and you, you started working? and Or maybe not. You had a whole phase in your life that maybe was very new to you. What was that like? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, that, that's the difference because when I received my diploma, I was already in the job market because I was a musician, an amateur um, journalist, amateur um, journalist. So that therefore, um, it was more in a sense of, I think the, 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 the diploma for me was like um, a certification that I knew stuff because I think before I went to study, I was someone who was always getting in discussions and trying to teach people things and trying to, to show that I am learned, that I know a lot of stuff. My brother in London, he said to me once, why do you want to study? You can just continue your life the way you're doing it without going to study. I think I needed a certification. It was something personal. It's something that I wanted since I was like 16, 17 years old. I wanted that certification there, yeah. You know what you're talking about. And the thing is, what is very um, ironical about this whole thing, before I went to study, I used to speak a lot. A lot of discussions, nights, long discussions. When I was finished studying, I started discussing less. I knew, I think I knew more, but I had less, less, um, less intention or whatever to speak more or to discuss more. It wasn't necessary anymore. Like I said, to, to show that I had knowledge. I just left it like that, right? And therefore, going back to the Caribbean wasn't in the picture as yet either. It was, uh, like, like you said, I think um, Shanice said it, was to wait until um, when the time comes to like being a pension or being going back later when you would have so-called made it and have everything you want and going back to um, to the, the Caribbean. St. Vincent was out of the order. Why? Because of political reasons, because in that whole thing of being journalist, musician, whatever, I used to be very political too. But political without being involved with the political party. Political in the sense of analyzing, being radical, like a radical intellectual. And I, I knew I couldn't really live in St. Vincent on the standards that they had there. It's not that the standards in Aruba are higher or better, because there are also uh, things you can question a lot and Aruba also, especially Aruba. But I've noticed since I came to Aruba also, even though I'm a, a doctor, PhD, I don't really get so much involved. I've done uh, two or three articles have been published, and I've done, I've done a book also here in Aruba. But then I'm like, well, that book that I did in Aruba is called Sense of Belonging. 
right, the English-speaking Arubans and how they look at Aruba and their position in Aruba. To me, again, is also a sense of belonging. Do I really belong here? And myself of being. So therefore, I, I look at those things and then I realize, well, what price am I prepared to pay to say certain things and do certain things, right? And, um, and perhaps some places in the world have finished paying the prices already when I was working for the Antillian welfare organizations, I've been a board of certain welfare organizations, being involved with certain political organizations, well, not political in the sense of structural political, but um, activistic organizations and all that, do I really need that in my life? Again, I could, I think I have the knowledge and the connections, but then sometimes I think more in the sense of getting involved with a youth group, like teaching, um, having a project for young people, whether it is politics or music or culture, um, cultural heritage. So those are the things that I am dealing with with myself in a sense of, and it's all my, myself. Because what I did not say, um, I think it was um, Lisa who was saying, well, when she was finished and she was wondering what she was going to do. What I did the first time I was finished with anthropology in Utrecht, <clears throat> I did send out um, applications and got no's, and they said, okay, I'm going to set up my own agency. That's what I did, set up my own company. And I got jobs, I got assignments and all that. And then I move on to SPR. And when I went to someplace else and that finished because the, they went bankrupt, I started another agency with another name. It was Ace, Ace Artist then. And um, when I slowed it down and went to do my PhD, when I when I was finished, I started another one. <laughs> right. And then I moved on to Nancy in Amsterdam, the, the National Institute of, um, of Slavery, where I stayed um, three and a half years, and then they took away our funding. I call it uh, political vandalism of the Rutte cabinet, backed by, um, by uh, AVV. They took away the subsidy, and then that's it. So I left again and started working on my own agency in the sense of not waiting to be employed or called to be employed. Well, when I'm called, I'm called. And then it's, then it's in the management functions. I think the four times I've worked were in management functions. And after Ninse, I worked at the University of Amsterdam. No, um, the view the view as a free university, as researcher, right? And that has been the whole thing. So therefore, I think I eventually came back to the Caribbean, I always wanted to, because my life has always been a thing of the Caribbean. 
I said earlier on I went to Costa Rica, but it wasn't my, my um, choice to go to Costa Rica. What happens in Utrecht, there was a lot of emphasis on Latin America, but then the few Costa Rica and other countries. And um, what happened there, we went to Costa Rica in 87. That was more or less the time when the Tamils were fighting against the Sri Lankans. And what the Dutch government did was to send all the students from Kron from um, Kroninger, Wageningen, and Utrecht who wanted to do their research outside of Holland to Costa Rica. So I was actually asked to go there. And I knew nothing of Spanish or anything like that. And it was my thing. I wanted to go to, for instance, to Grenada or St. Lucia. I knew Aruba, Carissa in the Caribbean. But then they asked me to go to Costa Rica. So I went. I said, okay, another adventure. Did you feel like you needed to be loyal, so to speak, to a new adventure in the country you had been living in during your studies, like in the Netherlands, or work? Or did you feel the need to go back home? And what were the reasons for either of these considerations? And before we get into it, I will... Um, I will say that we've already heard a lot of the different reasonings of going back and forth and in between and making your own institutions or organizations, because I think it's something um, debatable about making institutions like the way they are, because institutions are inherent and are inherently in that sense exclusive to people like us and our narrat and our narratives. So there's something to say about that. But um I will begin again, maybe with Lisa, so that you feel like you needed to be loyal to a new adventure in the country you had been or continent, maybe in Europe, living in during your studies, or did you really feel the need to go back? And what were like those negotiations for you? Um, it can be anything. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, of course. So for me, I felt absolutely no obligation to stay in the country that I studied, which is the Netherlands. Uh, I did weigh the pros and cons as to why it would be more beneficial for me to stay here to work versus going back home. But I also didn't limit myself to uh, just furthering my professional career in the Netherlands or in St. Martin. I also considered other countries, other continents, because I know the world technically is my oyster. So I always had the spirit of exploration or adventure when it comes to um, exploring beyond the place that I came from or where I studied. So to answer your question, I did not feel that obligation whatsoever. Yeah, so that's very um, clear to me that you have a specific way of feeling like you're maybe more of a global citizen as well and seeing that what you can set out to do doesn't necessarily have to be the place that you studied in or went to get your degree in. Um, maybe Shanika, you can go next and answer what, what you felt with this question. Like, did you feel the need to be loyal to a new adventure in the country you had been living in, or did you feel the need to go back? Or maybe you felt like you needed to do something else? Um, so 
I felt like I've felt both emotions, but like at different times of studying. So like when I first moved to the Netherlands, I felt like, okay, like I study here. I already had like this timeline, like when I graduate, um, I'm going to get this job, you know, for five years, we're going to have all of these things done. So I felt um, like at first I did feel loyal, like, okay, I'm going to stay here and build um, something here. Um, and then as the years go by, and of course you go through many different experiences and you learn more about the system here, but also more about yourself, I realized like, you know, maybe it was time for me to go back home. So like, at least for the past, I would say like two and a half years, I've been like debating when I was going to go back home. Um, I knew I wanted to go back home, but it was just a matter of when. And um, for me, uh, I didn't really see myself anywhere outside of um, Holland and St. Martin, at least right now. I do have an affinity for Canada. This is just random, but I really want to live in Canada at least one time, sometime in my life. I don't know when. But outside of that, um, yeah, for me, it was either Holland and St. Martin. I think that was more related to the kind of work I want to do um, and what I wanted to achieve within like a certain time frame of my life. So I felt like, okay, what I already accomplished in Holland is already done. And the next things I want to achieve, I could already see myself fulfilling them back home. And then let's say in the next five years, I feel like, okay, that chapter is done. Then I will think about going somewhere else. So I think my, my loyalty kind of lies depending on my, um, yeah, my phase <laughs> of what I'm in at the moment. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for answering that. Before we get to Mr. Kane, it's really interesting to hear all of these different um, timelines, you could say, of all of us uh, all being from the Caribbean, but like in a different phase. It's intergenerational as well because I've already been uh, working for, what, five, five, four or five years now? I, I don't even remember, you know? Um, and Mr. Kane has been working way longer. And it's also interesting to see the difference in obviously we're in a pandemic so that kind of excuse the, the 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 image of the job market or what we want to do uh, after we study but it's also interesting to see that for with me for example when I was doing my um, internships I was kind of like okay um, make an internship position for me because I want to do an internship that was not connected to my studies. I studied university uh, history at the Erasmus. And then they made an internship position at a cultural institution in Rotterdam for me. And then I kind of just paved my own way. So that is also something that I'm really hearing in this conversation is like paving your own way, even in the different timelines um, that we are all part of, even though we're all here talking today on this podcast, um, two of us are recently graduated Others of us are working a few years and Mr. Kane is our uh, in vak, like they would say in Dutch, and has had many different timelines and in studies and doing things that he is good at. Um, so that is something that I wanted to mention. That is something, yeah, interesting for, yeah, to see that that is something that is occurring on all of our different paths. Um, Mr. Kane, um, so you have a long legacy, I would say, already of the different things that you uh, were doing and are doing and have been doing and 
something that I hear very prominently in your story is that you tell, you told us and you tell the audience that is going to be listening to the podcast of, oh yeah, so that I did that and then I studied and then I created my own organization or I created my own agency or I created like creating the own things for yourself or the people and or the people around you. But to get back to the question, did you feel like in those different moments in your case, did you feel like you needed to be loyal to constantly a new adventure in the country you had been studying, living in, like in the Netherlands? Or did you feel like you you already said you, you don't go back to St. Vincent for different reasons, but did you feel like you needed to relocate or you needed to get away from where you studied and begin anew somewhere else? How, how was that for you in the previous year? Well, my answer would be in, in twofold. Um, let me take the Caribbean um, Anglo first. Uh, the first time I came to Aruba was in 1984. That was um, the 30th anniversary of the carnival. Um, I came with the, with the Aruban band, just playing um, saxophone for, right? So I, I think I fell, in, I fell in love with Aruba and, and, and that trip, right? So therefore, there was always this thing with Aruba. So I came very often for vacation and different purposes. And I was also a member of the board of Okan, that's an advice organization to the government. And well, the majority of the members were from Croatia. So we will go to Croatia for a week for uh, as um, uh, looking for information uh, and research purposes. But then I'll always make sure I got to come to Aruba for a day, for instance, and then go back to Croatia, and then you go back to, um, to the Netherlands. So I, I knew I was gonna do something on Aruba. In terms of the Netherlands and the loyalty, I mean, I've been in a lot of um, organizations in, in the Netherlands in board functions, but also as a member of different um, commissions and, and supervision um, groups, et cetera, et cetera. And that was giving back. So I was giving back to the state, the, the Dutch state itself, and also to people, but most of the times to Antillians, Arubans, and even Surinamers, because I was also doing music in a Suriname group, but also doing, getting involved with Suriname organizations. So therefore, my whole thing after studying, especially when I did um, the PhD, was to share my knowledge in, in, in Aruba. That's why I did this book and call it A Sense of Belonging, right? What I did was to interview various, various Arubans and ask them what, how they feel about being an Aruban and how they are treated as Arubans. These are the English-speaking Arubans. So I interviewed, um, I think it was 35 or 38, and put them in this book. And that 
to me then was the cementing more or less of my loyalty in the sense of, okay, to identify how the Arubans think, the English-speaking Arubans think, how are they treated? How do they feel that they are treated in the sense of belonging? So you have the sense of being, I am a person, this is me as a person, and my sense of belonging is, am I accepted, accepted in the area in which I'm living in? This space that I have, is this my personal space, space of the community, of the country, and how am I, how am I treated? Well, the thing is, strangely enough, for this book, I never asked a question about discrimination or racism. Those, the answers to those questions keep, just keep rolling out. People start talking about the way they live and who they are, and they will tell their stories, and they will tell, in a sense, how much they have been discriminated against, how much racism they have, they have um, experienced or confronted with, whether at school, when they were, when they were kids, or in the division between Babao, above the bridge and below the bridge, et cetera, et cetera. It all came out right there. We thought I asked him the question about that. So I knew about that too. And I've also had my experience when I came here the very first time. That's very, I think maybe it's relevant to this too. The very first time I came, I borrowed a car and um, the number plate of the car was on the chassis in the car itself and not in front. And one of these so-called white Aruban policemen stopped me and asked, uh, how come the thing is there? I'm not in front. I said, I don't know. I'm not the owner, I just borrowed this car. And he asked for my, um, my, my license. I did not have my license. My license was in Brazil. Brazil is a, is a small area between Savaneta and um, San Nicolas. Um, he, and I had an appointment downtown. And those days you had no, uh, no mobile telephone to call somebody and explain, well, uh, I'm delayed. I'm going to go back to Brazil and I'm come back, come downtown. So he sent me to get my, um, sent me back up to I stopped me around the airport area. So I went all the way back to Brazil, got my license and came down to the, the city, to the central bureau of the police. And there was a, a, a sergeant sitting at the desk, a black guy. And I told him, this chap asked me to bring my license. He came out, he looked at me, and he walked and he walked away. That's it. And I'm thinking, man, I invested so much to go all the way back to San Nicolas to get my license, get here. And this man just ignored me. And those days was different because those days it was what was called radical rule. And I started using explicits and all that right there in the station. And I saw the policeman doing so. I know these two have problems. These two have racial problems. He is hired, he is a sergeant, and I don't know whether this guy is a normal um, constable. But the way he was shaking his head, that empowered me to really curse in the police station. But I know you can't curse 
in the police station, you can get locked up, right? You can be charged. But I had to do it because this man, he wasted my time, sent me all the way back to San Nicholas to get this thing, came down with it, and then he ignored me. I was not going to ignore me when I went and did the work you asked for. So that for me was another reason saying, I'm not going to Aruba. So every time my uh, my partner keep pushing to go to Aruba because she can get a job, because she had studied um, Spanish and Latin American Kunda, and she is very good in Papamento and English and all the languages. My thing was, not, I'm not going to Aruba. I could be discriminated in Holland. I understand that. That's the way they are. That's the right supremacy works. And I could deal with that, but not in Aruba and be discriminated against because the people are half white. They're not really white. They're not Europeans. So I'm not going to accept that. Sadly, but logically enough, we are still living in an afterlife of colonialism, where the systems of segregation and thought patterns of historical colonial times still remain. All of the racist thoughts and thoughts of making other people most of the time, darker-skinned people, different and less human, are still seen in our society. We also see that, for example, that heteronormativity, a.k.a. only so-called straight people, are seen as the norm. Also, elitism and the thought of making it economically pertains to these old ideas of who deserves to have comfort and access to societal care and positions of power. These patterns these thought patterns also seep in, are in us, when we think often of racialized ideas of beauty, of hair, and humanity, especially in black and brown diaspora communities as well. And all of these thoughts are violent and violence-inducing. Darker-skinned people being treated as less than human and or worthy than lighter-skinned people is an example of colorism. And this is definitely heard in the experience of what Mr. Kane has described beforehand. And then the connections are, are such that everybody is related to somebody else. Somebody else. So if I'm going to cuss off somebody today, the next person we're talking about maybe his sister or his brother or family member, etc., etc., and you will be uh, subattached or marginalized. So the thing is. I'm going to stay in Holland. So it wasn't a question of loyalty as such. It was a question of what is strategically best for me. But when I keep coming back, when I did this research for this book, that was in 2000, um, 2017, things seem to have changed. And uh, I was treated differently. I'm still treating differently. So I'm enjoying my stay in Aruba right now. And then it's, this is how things went. It was a question of when and how and what do you have to offer. So I still, so I do stuff at the university at this moment. I just did a course called um, Business Anthropology. That is showing how important culture is and what you do has to do with the culture of the country, the culture of the organization, and group's culture, and how that works. And I'm waiting to do another course, and in a sense of, okay, 
sharing my knowledge with with Arubans. Thank you. The, the the story you just shared with us and all of the facets of that, but what occurred in Aruba is something that I'm sadly not um, surprised about, to be honest. And um, it's uh, all of those things are very important stuff to talk about on this island and in the Caribbean at large. Uh, strong notions of anti-blackness uh, in the Caribbean, strong notions of marginalizations in different senses. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, thank you. It, it made me think and kind of bevestigd, like they say in Dutch, things again for me <laughs> about the island where I'm from, which is Aruba. But my parents, like Lisa said, are also migrants. So all of the notions of like needing to fit in and being the outsider constantly relating to that notion that is project projected on me as well, even though I am a light-skinned person, but not Aruban enough oftentimes for Arubans here, is something that I had to think about on that spectrum of that conversation. Um, we are going to the second segment. We already kind of talked about this in our uh, previous conversation before we had this one. Um, I'm going to give the floor to Ava to kind of introduce that to us. Welcome to the second segment called Treasures We Keep, where we talk with our guests on the things they bring to the table related to home, be it a picture, sound, song, poem, aka treasure. Um, before I introduce uh, the second segment, of course, I just want to also say that I find it really amazing to hear how all of us in every period of our lives have actually had come to a point where you know that you have to work just extra hard to earn your spot somewhere to get a job and find your earnings in a place where you know that you can still grow, that you know that the forces are actually with you and not against you. Um, so I, I really do want to say that, you know, in our own ways, we all really uh, dug our ways, you know, and uh, we continue to do so no matter what time in our lives it may be. You know, we're always going to be just having to prove more and work harder and always trying to put ourselves out there more, as uh, Shanika has said, uh, keeping on pushing on and uh, to get the work that we need, you know, and, and being paid according to the work that we do. Um, especially. But um, on to the second segment, which is called Treasures We Keep, where we ask our guests to bring along a keepsake, something special, an object of their own choice of any form um, that means the most to them um, and that reminds them of home. Um, it could be something folkloric, something um, traditional, something historical. And uh, I think I'm going to start with Lisa. Do you want to introduce your treasure? Sure. So my treasure is actually an item. Uh, because I'm not home right now, I do not have it with me. But I will do my best to describe it to the best of my abilities. So like I mentioned before, um, my parents are from South America, uh, Guyana to be specific. So I grew up in a very like dual cultural household, so to, so to say. So I feel very strongly, of course, to the culture of St. Martin, but of course I was brought up primarily on Guyanese culture. And one of the things that I made it my duty to have when I moved to the Netherlands was, I know, it's very, very random, a broom. 
Now, this is a very special broom because it is made from uh, the leaves of coconut. They call it a pointer broom. Uh, I think that it's also used in Suriname because I can see that Diana is also reacting. <laughs> I think it's also used in other Caribbean islands as well. But um, this broom, for some reason, just means a lot to me. It reminds me of home. It reminds me of my grandmother uh, specifically because I also grew up with my grandmother in my household. And although for the most part, all brews have the same purpose, it was always reiterated in my brain that for some reason, this broom just cleans the best. And in order, like, <laughs> in a way to stay true to my ancestry, to my parents, to my family, uh, I just made sure that no matter where I move, that I have this broom with me. Um, so the way the broom is made, it's from coconut leaves. You would need to strip the little uh, strip that's in the middle of the leaves one by one. So it takes about, I don't know, five, six, seven branches. It's a very tedious process. I have never done it, but I've heard my grandmother describe it time and time again. And then you tie it with a ribbon and then it's like about this long and this is your broom. Um, also from the fibers of this broom, I have seen my grandmother make kites, my dad as well, from this uh, broom where they usually fly it around Easter. So it just had so much like cultural significance, folkloric significance as well, because it's also believed to ward off evil from your house. So as much as it's a very random item, this is the item that I cherish most from home. Absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. Brilliant, brilliant. I, you know, it's not only the fact that it's a broom, but that you mentioned all of the other factors, you know, that it brings you closer to your grandmother and that it has cultural meaning for you. And we, yeah, we couldn't have on this. This has been the best treasure. No life. Thank you so much. Uh, Shanika, what's your treasure? Okay, so... The one thing that I always choose to have, and I, I got it, I know our viewers can't see, but it's a pillow. And uh, this is my baby pillow that I specifically asked my mom to send me when I first moved to Holland. And if you look at a lot of my baby pictures, this pillow is in there. It's been with me from in Carousel, because I was born in Carousel, to going to St. Martin. And this pillow actually like is comforting. For me, especially like when I really miss my mom, I hug this pillow. Um, when I go through my anxiety attacks, this pillow is like my, oh, I don't want to cry. Um, yeah, it's just grounding for me. And I still have like the, you can see like the baby print on it. Like I never, ever change it. Like nothing could go on top of it. Like, yeah. So this has been with me for 25 years <laughs> and counting. Um, so this is a treasure I keep, and I swear in every house I go to, and I hope to pass this on to my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, because it gave me so much comfort um, over the past couple of years, no matter how far it may be from home. So this is my treasure. And and see me crying. I wasn't trying to cry. <laughs> That's a very wholesome treasure, extremely wholesome. And to be honest, you know, it's funny that you even, when we talk about, you know, a treasure that you have to, you know, present in this podcast, and, you know, it's also just those little kind of treasures that just takes you back to a certain time. You know, I imagine that just by smelling it, that already takes you to that time that you had just received it and you remember certain moments holding it, you know, 
<clears throat> holding it. So no, absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Mr. Kane, Mr. Artwell Kane, what is your treasure? Before I show you my treasure, if I may, I would like to make a, a, smart, a small observation about um, Lisa's, um, Lisa's um, uh, uh, choice, the broom, and the African tradition of American, African-American getting married, getting married and jumping the broom. Because it seems that enslaved persons, when they got married, one of the most important things was to jump the broom. So they will have this broom and they will put it in front of the church or the altar, wherever they were getting married, where they were allowed to get married. And they will jump the broom. And if you jump the broom, it means that you um, that, that you're married. So that's it. Oh, great. That's part of the African tradition in another way, interpret differently in Guyana or in St. Martin, I think. Right. Anyway. Thank you for um, that addition. Yeah, go on, Mr. King. But then I think my um what I'll show you, I'll show you my um saxophone. Because that has taken me to the different places of the world. And that's the, to me, that's the essence of most of the things that I've done. Because this, to me, are you seeing? Yeah, this is. Um, to me, the, the most important thing, because this has taken me all over the world, right? To play from um, in the Caribbean, the Virgin Islands, Jamaica, in Europe, to Germany, Belgium, France, different places. Right? And it's right here in my room where I can take it up and practice when I, I feel like, right? It's like having um, books, all those books over there, but I'm having the saxophone more close to me than, uh, than the books. Is there anything all, we can find online, Mr. Kane, that we hear you playing? Because then we can use it in the podcast. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Exclusive, I'm sorry. I think, I, I, yeah, yeah, I guess you might find something. I think I've seen something once or twice. I don't really bother with it anymore because I'm more concentrated with. Um, I left music in '84 um, when I started to study in Utrecht. I left music totally because it was too much. It was too demanding. Because sometimes we were playing twice per day, whole weekend. And especially when you're playing in a Caribbean um, group, it means sometimes dance music, you're playing two groups or three groups in one dance. It means one group is playing and the other one is waiting. And when the group A finishes, group B starts and so forth and so forth. So they will start at nine o'clock in the night 
and they finish at four or five in the morning. Very demanding, very, takes a lot of energy and everything else. So I guess when I started to study in 84, I decided that's it. Yeah, that's beautiful that you still show it to us. I think that is awesome to, to see all of these different treasures. It really makes me think as well of all of the treasures we've had um, in the previous episodes. We've had so many different things from music pieces right, okay. to pictures to everything. And um, I don't know if there are any other emotional aspects, Mr. Kane, that you want to talk about in regards to your treasure um, other significance of the saxophone maybe for you? Um, well, I still practice. I practice. I use it to practice. I still practice every now and again. And I still have a dream uh, of starting a group, Cane Juice, like Cane Juice or something like this, something, something like that, with, um, with three other people, three or four other people. But then the idea is to play for, um, for receptions, play for weddings, for small things, you know. So then it's not so much about the money, making money. When I started, when I came to Holland, when I went to Holland, it was making a living. Now it'd be like uh, playing just, you know, and playing jazz mixed with Caribbean music. So you have cane juice, the real cane juice from the Caribbean. And then it's not a money thing, but the more in the sense, okay, you're jamming and you're practicing and really working hard to produce the best music. So there's, there's this dream is still there. So I still practice every now and again and do jazz scales, minor scales, major scales, et cetera, et cetera, blues scales. So when the moment comes, I will still be able to, um, to, to perform. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I don't know, Ava, I'm looking at you. Maybe you want to add something because we're going to round off um, for this uh, conversation. The time always flies by very fast. Um, but I just personally want to say thank you to everyone joining in on the podcast later and obviously all of our guests, Lisa, Shanika, and Mr. Kane, and obviously my co-host, Ava. Um, this was, again, an insightful, insightful conversation. Ava, do you want to add anything? Uh, yes. You know, I mean, obviously we all bring um, a certain treasure that means so much to us. But I especially love that even though, at least I hope then for those that listen to this episode, that you can all still take the description of every treasure from everybody and let that take you to a certain time. You know, uh, this conversation has been uh, you know, uh, executed by people from such different generations. And so these treasures take us to such a time that we may or may not be familiar with. But I still find it beautiful that a saxophone can take us to a time where some of us were not even born yet, you know. Um, and then we have a broom that that takes us to a time uh, that comes from a, a, a tradition that is from a long time that we we don't know personally, but we get it in the form of a broom, you know. And then we have something that comes in the shape of a pillow, which brings so much comfort to somebody, but takes them to a time where, you know, times were just so different. And you hope indeed that that, that same, you know, feeling and uh, extension can be given to those who come after you, you know, which takes, which will bring them again to a time where you were around. So it's so beautiful. And um, I'm very happy about this section. And I want to thank everybody again for today, uh, for tonight.
but it's getting darker of course over here on this side of the on this side of the, the world um, yeah well indeed thank you everyone so that was already episode five i want to thank all our guests again and uh, we'll see you soon thank you huge thank you to my mom my co-host guiana gani arivi ihmara alexine gianni and of course, everybody else who gives us a great amount of support. Thank you all so much. Uh, another round of thank yous. I want to thank my mom, my dad. I want to thank everyone who has been supporting me in any way. So I forget your name. It's nothing personal. I want to thank Shari, Ila. Of course, I want to thank Ava. I want to thank Stephanie. I want to thank Rivi. We also want to thank Quincy. Thank you for the beautiful, awesome conversations we've been having. I want to thank Krista. I want to thank Amal for always pushing forward and also inspiring me. And of course, I want to thank Malik for always having my back and inspiring me as well. Belula, love you. Thank you for always also having my back. I want to thank Afrospectus for inspiring me and pushing the needle forward. That also means you, Michael. I want to thank Saada for always keeping me sharp with her pen and her wit. And I want to thank everyone and anything that has been around me the past few weeks and months pushing me forward, inspiring me in many, many, many ways. Thank you very much. Also a big thank you to our team, Caribbean Ties, Museum and Mondrian Fund. <laughs>